Amen. Jake and Lexi, if at this time you could come up on top of the platform. Am I on in the room? Can you hear me? Good. Stand there. Since you, Jake and Lexi, have presented this child for holy baptism, you are asked to answer the following questions sincerely before God and his people and appropriate responses we do, God helping us. First, do you acknowledge that our children, who are conceived and born in sin and are subject to the misery that sin brings, even the condemnation of God, are sanctified in Christ and so, as members of his church, ought to be baptized? Second, do you acknowledge that the teaching of the Old and New Testaments, summarized in the articles of the Christian faith and taught in this Christian church, is the true and complete doctrine of salvation? Third, Do you sincerely promise to do all that you can to teach this child and to have her taught this doctrine of salvation? What is your response? Praise the Lord. Our Lord said, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Would bring Olivia down to the water. Olivia Ray Disselkun, I baptize you into the name of the Father of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Congregation, you have a response as well. You witness this baptism. An appropriate response as you make these vows is we do God helping us. Do you, the people of the Lord, promise to receive this child in love, pray for her, help care for her instruction in the faith, and encourage and sustain her in the fellowship of believers. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is your response? Praise the Lord. I selected a verse for Olivia, John 14, 18, and 19. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. We have a certificate to commemorate this, that you will be able to one day present this to Olivia, have a reminder of what happened, that she was brought into the covenant people of God through the washing of the water of Christ. We will, you can take your seat, we will respond in song. You would turn to hymn number 192. 192, O God, Great Father, Lord, and King, we sing this hymn as it is about baptism. We'll sing all the verses of 192.
This time we'll go to our Lord in prayer, and this congregational prayer will begin with a prayer of thanksgiving for this baptism, as we are reminded of the baptism we all share in and the baptism we have just witnessed. Let's pray. O Lord, our gracious God, forever faithful to your promises, we thank you for assuring us again in the sacrament of baptism that you forgive us and receive us as your children in Christ. Grant wisdom and love to the parents and to us all as we carry out the vows just made. We pray that you will guide our little ones throughout their lives, enable all of them to respond in faith to the gospel, fill them with your spirit, and make their lives fruitful. Uphold them in their hour of trial, and when Christ returns, let them celebrate with all the people of God your greatness and goodness forever in the joy of your new creation. And that is the prayer we make for ourselves, for all of us here, and for Olivia. We are so thankful to see your child brought to the waters of baptism and to see promises placed on her head. And though she's not aware, we pray that as she would grow, she would be made aware. That as she would grow, the promises you've given to her would be evident. And that there would be in her a faith and a life that fears you. And we pray for not only the protection of all our covenant youth with her, but as this is the the baptism we've witnessed, we pray especially for her, that you would protect and guard her from the dangers of this life, from the dangers of sin and the temptations that are faced, but as well from the dangers of a world that bears the marks of death. And we are so thankful and enjoy know that she bears water, that responded to in true faith will keep her against all these trials. That where we turn to you, where we take the the hands of faith and grasp the promises that you give to your people, there is security. And we all share in exactly what she has just been brought into as we visibly see it descend on her head in water. We are so thankful for what you give to each of us beyond what we deserve to give us a sign that we can see, to assure us in the weakness of our faith that you have promised. You have promised that no matter the sins, no matter the amount, your water purchased in your blood cleanses all. And as surely as we see water on the head, we know no sin can withstand that washing if it be received in faith. We thank you for that blessing, and we pray that we would be encouraged Encouraged to go about in a world of difficulty, in a world of pain, in a cursed world, because we have the waters of baptism, the promises of God, and are assured of that, even in the presence of the Holy Spirit within our hearts and lives. We pray that you would be with us in our afflictions. We pray for the the pain that many of us undergo, and we bring these requests before you, because you are sovereign and powerful, and because we seek to magnify your name and laying upon your broad shoulders the weights we cannot bear. We pray for Kevin Baltima and his family, for Tricia Ipema and her family as they face a difficult situation in the health of Kevin and what he undergoes. It is in these times we ask that the promises which you've graciously given to your people would find an an even greater degree of acceptance in these families' hearts. May you strengthen them even as we pray for healing and recovery. 
We pray that if it be your will to take Kevin home, that you would give to him and the family a faith and a witness which would cause all who see it to wonder at the good news of the gospel. You have gone to prepare a place for your servants, and we truly believe this and ask that it would be a belief and a promise the Baltima and Ipema families would greatly appreciate, would, would give to them a peace that we can't understand and properly explain, but we pray and uplift them to you and to your merciful care. What better hands can we bring our requests than to the God of love, to the God of faithfulness and compassion? And it's in that same way we bring the other requests before you. We pray that you would be with Chuck Cowley going for these medical tests and that they would go well and that you'd give to him peace as he undergoes them. We pray for a successful surgery for Meredith, that you would watch over her and that recovery would go well as well and that you'd calm any nerves for her and, and the family that you would watch over. We give you prayers of thanksgiving for the successful surgery and, and now the recovery of Abby Helmus. Be with her, help her to recover well. We give you prayers of thanksgiving as we see Nathan Bonima back in the States and, and being kept safe in his deployment. We pray that you would be with him and that you would help him to see the, the hand of care that you have exercised over him and that we would all see that in our walks of life. It's not circumstance or just a, a certain type of worldly luck by which we walk, by which we see safety even in travels and return. It is your providential care. We pray that you would be with Reverend Ernie Langendoon, who is working with Mexican migrants in southern Ontario, be with the work that he, he undergoes, and as well as those with him. Be with him as he visits the church in Comiagua, Honduras. We pray that you would be with them and the members there, as well as the members who've been added to the, the church in Comiagua. We ask that you would help them to open up their hearts to the gospel and respond in faith. We pray, Lord, and bring before you all these things. We bring them before you, for we know it matters. We know that this isn't a filler in the service, nor is this an empty exercise, because this is the chief way we, we give you thanks. We praise your name. And we also know we pray with the power, the power that you give to answer prayer to answer the prayers of your people, even as you assure us so many times in your word that you are ready to answer the prayers of your saints. For when a saint would ask a prayer, would you give what he did not ask? We just pray that we would ask rightly and act, ask according to your word. Bless the rest of this service of worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of preparation is number 536, Jesus Calls Us. Let's stand and sing all the verses of number 536.
Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 5, verses 1 to 11. It can be found on page 1094 of your pew Bibles. Luke 5, 1 to 11, on Jesus' call of the first disciples and of Peter. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, as we turn to this word, uh, a story, yet a true story of what took place so long ago, and uh, a story that continues to the present, where we see the effects, and we see how you have called your first disciples and continue to call your church, and continue to see a wondrous catch, a wondrous fishing of men, and a fishing and a catch to life. We ask that we would be in awe of you and your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. There's nothing worse than being told what to do by someone you don't think knows what to do. There's nothing worse than having someone who does not know your field or your vocation come in and say, you're probably not doing it right No carpenter likes to hear when they're installing a door or window or doing some repair, the homeowner to come up and say, you know, I was was watching HGTV. Never never is good when it begins that way, but I was watching HGTV and and the way that that they did the window was different or the way that they did the floor was different. You should probably do it different. You should probably do it my way or this way. No one likes hearing how to properly wire a house from the one who has hired them to wire it. No one likes to hear from someone who doesn't cook, this is how you should cook. No one likes advice from someone who seems to not know. And in fact, when the advice seems so foolish, we especially don't like to hear that. In fact, how often don't we talk about customers or clients or others and, and we, we speak to the, to the guild, to those who know, we say, you wouldn't believe what they were telling me to do. It showed they didn't know, understand at all. Well, we, we see that a bit here. You see that a bit here in, in Peter and the disciples and what they would have thought. And, and that's a point of the text. The text is trying to show you that these men whose vocation was catching fish... 
They were fishermen. They knew it. They did this day in and day out. It's meant to to cause a bit of questioning, a bit of why is he giving us this advice? Why is he telling us to do this when we know better, when he doesn't? You can almost hear them want to say, you know, Jesus, that was a great sermon you just preached from the boat, but why don't you leave the boat in the fishing toss? Keep preaching, but we got this. We know. And obviously that miracle then shows a profound truth. You, the, the, this miracle affects them greatly. And why does it affect them so much? It affects them so much because they do know. They know better. They know this shouldn't have happened. They know that this is a miraculous catch. They've never seen this like before when this is their life. And the one who they thought wouldn't know better, whose advice seemed so foolish, proved to be right. Proved to be successful. Jesus' words proved true. And there's the principle we must take away from this passage. Jesus' words are always right. Jesus' words are always true. He doesn't give foolish advice, and whether he's catching fish or catching men, or telling Peter not to be afraid, or as we proceed in the words of the New Testament, telling the church anything about the future, this is a bit of an assurance. An assurance that we have that his words are always right. His words always prove true to such an extent that he will even extend a commissioning and a call to his first disciples with this miracle as a foundation and a basis so that they could always look back and say, do you remember when we were called? Do you remember when the man who wasn't a fisherman showed he knew all and even had power to bring more fish than they'd ever seen before into their nets that were even sinking the craft of their trade? Jesus knows. The miraculous catch reveals the vital truth for Peter and the church's unlikely calling that Jesus' word always proves true. We see that first in this miraculous catch. The setting of this miracle is this this story where Jesus is preaching, and you see as it begins, it's on one occasion. Luke is, is not putting this in a chronology of where this occurred necessarily in light of what has gone before. He's saying on one occasion, this happened. This is filling his purposes here to place it right after a day in the life of Christ, after he's preached in Nazareth. These, these settings and these paradigms of his ministry to show this is what Jesus came to do. This was his preaching. Well, now we have this one occasion where he calls. And the setting is he is preaching. He he gets into Simon's boat because, as the text said, they were pressing in on him to hear the word of God. The crowds are coming up on him. He's against the shoreline. And to better speak to and preach to them, he gets into Simon's boat, which was not a coincidence. He selected Simon's boat. In fact, it's quite likely that Jesus already knew Peter here. It may not be that clear in the text, and though it isn't chronological, we have indications that would say Peter was already uh, familiar with Jesus and Jesus him. In John 1, 40-41, in the Gospel of John, we read of Andrew, that's Peter's brother, 
And Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And in chapter 1, verse 40 and 41, we read that Andrew, after meeting Jesus, finds his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. There are other indications in the Gospels where there was likely already a certain amount of following that Peter was doing here. You can even see that in the fact that in his boat, this is Jesus coming to preach, and he calls him Master and respects him already. So there's already this, likely, this familiarity. But now here's the commission and the calling. So Peter, who seems to be aware of Jesus, seems to even know him, Perhaps, again, we know that this isn't necessarily in chronological order, but we did see in the previous texts that Jesus was in Peter's house, healed his mother-in-law, in fact. Now again, where does that come? In the narrative, we don't exactly know, but there are indications to say Jesus and Peter knew each other here, but here is that calling, a calling more formal, formally to be my disciple to follow me, to abandon what you know, to take now a new vocation. You used to fish for fish. Now you fish for men. And that's what we see here. So Jesus gets into his boat. And then, after preaching this sermon, he tells Peter to go out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now this is where the advice seems to be foolish. Experts say the best time to catch fish, especially with deep nets where you're going out into deep, is at night when they're not as visible. They're not as, the nets are not as visible to that which you're trying to catch and that it's just better at night to catch them, which is why they were out all night. That's what the text says. That's what Peter says. They had already been out all night at the better time to catch in the better place to catch it, because even if you were going to go in the daytime, experts say that you'd have better success near the shore and not the deep. And so Jesus comes in and says to them, these fishermen, got into the deep, let down your deep nets, and try to catch these fish, which to these fishermen is foolishness. And you hear in Jesus' instructions, that sounds a bit foolish, you hear Peter's response. And then, this is not even considering the situation, by the way. Peter says, we've been up all night and caught nothing, so this means they're tired. And as anyone who does work all day, work all night actually, and has no reward, no fruit from it, they're likely quite frustrated at this point. And Luke also says that the fishermen, it was at that time before Jesus was preaching, that the fishermen cleaned their nets. What does this mean? It probably means that these men, their, their crew, their two boats, had been out all night, caught nothing, they cleaned it all up, the boat was stowed away, ready to begin again the next night, and Jesus says, go do it again. This is, again, this is like you're a carpenter, you're a, a, a plumber, you're an electrician, you've done your job, you've, you loaded up the van or the truck, it's all cleaned up, and, and someone comes in and says, why don't you rewire this, why don't you redo this? We aren't really receptive to that. We don't want to do it again, especially when we think it's foolish advice. But you see in Peter's response, there is a a respect. He's willing to do it, but you see he expresses doubt. Why do we see him express doubt? Well, he, he even says it. He tells Jesus that we've been out all night and caught nothing. This is, this is him gently trying to say to his master, whom he respects, this is, this is probably not going to work. You even think in his mind there's already a likely told-you-so moment 
And the disciples have their minds made up. What's going to happen? They're going to go out and they're going to toil. They're going to catch nothing. But they, they're willing to do this. They respect Jesus enough and they'll go do it. And so that what brings them out. But then they have a catch, a catch that is so monumental, so huge, that can't be explained. Or how wrong were they? How wrong was Peter? More fish than he can handle. More fish than they've ever handled in one, in one time. At the worst time possible. And then verse 8. This is a key verse here in this text. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Here's what's interesting. In the previous narratives, when, when Jesus did an amazing work, a healing, a, an exorcism, something like that, the people wanted him to stay. Let's keep him for ourselves. He's a miracle worker. Let's keep him here. He can heal our diseases and, and our maladies. Let's crown him king, but let him be here. And that's what had happened in the previous narratives. And what's interesting is you would think to someone you've just got who has given you more economic benefit than anyone else before, this is a financial boom for them. What they would have gained from, from selling these fish, the amount of it, this would have been quite lucrative. Now, wouldn't it have made the most business sense for them to say, join our crew or, 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 or stay here? Not necessarily to, to tell him, as Peter does, get away from me. Depart from me. So why is this interesting? It's interesting because this miracle goes beyond, in Peter's mind, just look what we received. Who is this man? And who, is, who am I to be next to him? Who is, who is he to be in my boat? Depart from me, Jesus. I am a sinful man. This is what Peter says, calling him even Lord. Notice the change of his name there. You can look in, the, in your text. Before, Peter had called Jesus Master. When he had talked about going out and, and dropping the nets, he had called him Master. Well, now you see a change, and he calls him Lord. Is this significant? Is there meaning behind this change? Well, the Greek word translated Lord can mean Lord, it can mean Master, it can mean Sir. And we see that used all the time in the Gospels. It can be just a mark of respect, like a Sir. It can be more and Lord. And so how do we take this change? Is this significant or is this just another form of address? Well, I think this is significant. And the reasons I would say that is up to this point in Luke, that word Lord has only been used to refer to God or to refer to Jesus as the Son of God. That's the way Lord's been used and, and all the way at every point to this one. But there's another reason. So he calls him Master when he's doubting him. But now he calls him Lord when he's in awe of him. So this likely means, this is likely a way the text is showing that Peter is this astonished, he's in this awe as to even change his form of address, not just master anymore, but now Lord. A far greater term of respect and, and honor and glory. And how much did he mean? I don't know that we can say that, but you see that he means more than what he did before. And he calls him Lord, and then even by their response, they show they're willing to give up everything to serve him. So clearly they see him as their Lord. And so this leads then to an unlikely calling. 
Peter, having just said that he is sinful, and, and by extension so are all of them, they're these fishermen. And even if they weren't rough characters, which they may have been, anyone is sinful to the Lord, and they recognize it. And Peter says to depart, but Jesus responds with an unlikely call. Look at verse 10. Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They turned away from it all. They turned away from what they knew. Why? They were fishermen, and this text makes it clear. That's what they knew. It would take quite a bit of convincing for any one of us to change careers so mightily, so quickly, so drastically. From what they knew and how they supported their family and themselves to leave all of that and to turn to a whole new calling and one so different. It wasn't a different form of fishing. Well, it was, but it was not just a different form of fishing for fish and what they knew. It was now preaching and evangelism and witnessing and teaching. Catching men. Why are they willing to do that? Because the haul of fish. Because it was miraculous. Because they knew by this miracle that the one who told them it, his word was truth. And that makes them turn away from it all. Takes away the inhibitions that, how can I catch men? I'm an uneducated fisherman. And that's why this is an unlikely calling. Not only do these men, not only does Peter have no formal education whatsoever, he also, per his own admission, isn't worthy. He's a sinner. He's not one who believes he has the right to be in the Lord's presence. And yet God calls him. How interesting and what a reversal. What a token of God's grace that Jesus in his purity and power and in his holiness did not tell Peter, you're right, bring me back to shore, or better yet, why didn't he just get out of the boat and walk to shore and say, you're right, you shouldn't be in my presence. Instead, his purity, his holiness, his power doesn't push Peter away. It reassures him and says, do not be afraid. I have use for you. I have a commission and a calling for you. One that you are not deserving of. One that by yourself you're not prepared for. But as we already know, this text shows Jesus' word always proves true. Jesus' word is always right. And so they leave all to follow him. And this passage then raises a question. A question as one commentator puts it. And, and follow his phrasing. He phrases it in a way that's designed to, to draw our attention. Yes, this question, do I allow place for the foolishness of Jesus? Do I allow place for the foolishness of Jesus? A question, do I allow for the foolishness of Jesus? What does he mean? Do we follow him and his word when that's the only assurance we have to go on? Do we follow him and his word assured of the fact that he is always right and always true 
even when it seems to our senses and to what we know that this advice is the exact opposite of what should be done? Does it give us assurance? Assurance even as a church. And this gets closer to the context of this passage because it's true principally speaking, and this text proves the principle that God's word is right in anything. That Jesus' word is right no matter what he says. And this text takes that principle and, and brings it to bear on one specific aspect. And what is that? The calling of Peter and what would be through the, the Great Commission and the apostles giving their own calling and their commission to the church. It would be by extension then the call of the church. Do we trust that whatever, that whatever Jesus says will prove true and right as regarding the church? Even the means, the means of calling men, the means that they're going to do these big game fishing, seems foolish. Go out, Peter, this is what the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament will reveal, go out and catch men by suffering. You're going to suffer a lot, so there's, there's one means you're going to suffer by preaching. And that's foolishness. It's the foolishness of the world to go out and just preach. These are the means. By sacraments, you're going to take these, these things we've even thought of this morning and witnessed. By these means, are you going to go and, and catch men? The world would say, that's foolish. Do we trust that God's word is always proven true and right? You see, we can take that principle and apply it to every aspect of our life where we doubt, and we can say, look at this catch of fish where it was seen to be doubtful, where it was seen to be foolish but was not. The disciples, no doubt, would have looked back on this very experience, even as they were called later, even as Christ had left them, and they were engaged in that sole pursuit of fishing for men, of witnessing and spreading the church, of making disciples, obeying that great commission, they no doubt would have looked back on this for assurance, as we should. We should know that though we don't just flatten the context, this is, this is a call of the disciples. This wasn't our own call. We didn't even exist then, obviously. This isn't our call. But it's a calling in which we do share by the fact that we are part of the church. And so this isn't the, the formal call for us to go catch men. This was the, the, for Peter and the disciples through the Great Commission and all that. It filters down to us. And because of that, now we can see we can take assurance even through what they did. The assurance that they found that in this miraculous catch, which blew their minds, we can see and say the same thing when we doubt and doubt that Jesus' word can be true to know, look what happened. It shouldn't have, and it did. That's why they leave all. It is this truth. And we also see displayed in this text something else. That the first step of being useful, first step of being useful as a Christian is to oddly enough recognize your uselessness. The first step of the Lord using you mightily for his kingdom is the one that Peter makes to understand in humility he is useless. And it is in recognizing that you are useless, that you are sinful, and that humility then that the Lord takes you and you become useful. And he uses them. He calls these men, 
who didn't deserve it and weren't worthy for it, and they are the ones in their humility who will go out. And so we see in this passage that Jesus has prophetic power. He knows all. He knows what to do with the fishing, but he also knows what will happen with the call of the church and the kingdom. We also see that obedience in his word and to his word leads to success. Peter doubted. He didn't believe it would happen. And yet, by just being obedient, even in that doubt, even in that question, he saw success. And this catch becomes a symbol of the mission in which he would be engaged and then have a, a symbol of its success as well. Those who know themselves to be sinners are the most responsive to Jesus. What had Jesus said in his preaching? What did he say earlier? That he had come to the poor. He had come to the humble to proclaim good news. And what did he proclaim? The year of the Lord's favor. And that's what Peter even sees now. Why is it the year of the Lord's favor? That in answer to a a repentant heart that says, Depart from me, I'm a sinner. In response to that truth, he isn't sent away. He's called and commissioned. That is the the year of the Lord's favor. That is the year we are in as well. That time where right now there's a stall and a withholding of judgment and, and a profession of sin in a humble heart doesn't lead to condemnation, which would be just. It leads to a call and a commission. Experiencing that year of favor, Jesus, in essence, tells this poor wretched man, I have a use for you, and it goes so quickly from a confession to a commission. He will use those unworthy sinners to take them and make them catch men. Jesus' holiness is beautiful. Jesus' heart's beautiful here. That that command he gave Peter, do not be afraid. By all accounts, Peter should have been, and yet because of the the purity and holiness of the Lord, because of his love and his faithfulness to his people, because of his ministry and his mission, Peter wasn't brought down, he wasn't pushed away. And neither are we. Neither are any of those called to Christ. The humble, the poor in spirit who respond, that's why the Beatitudes say, blessed are you, blessed are they. For we experience that answer. This passage focuses on Jesus' knowledge. We see the human condition in Peter, but we see the opportunity to share in God's tasks, and we see the assurance that his kingdom will go out and many will be brought in. What a great truth. What a great principle. His word will always be proven true. Our Lord, the one who loves us, is always right. Always right. And in that truth, we can proceed and do things that we aren't capable of. The church is weak in ourselves. Does anyone possess great strength here? We can look at the titans of the faith. Were they so strong and so mighty? We can look at Peter himself. A pillar of the church, one God used to, to lay the foundation as, a, as an apostle. We know his life. Was he so great and so strong and powerful? No. 
God's word is, Jesus' word is, Jesus' authority is, so much so that he can take us weak, this weak church, and use it for something that we have no power to do in ourselves, and yet will prove true and successful in the power of our Lord and Savior. God doesn't turn away us in our broken hearts and our broken sins. He commissions us to go out and fulfill his desires and grand purposes. Let's go out in that truth, knowing it is always successful. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are so in awe of you, in awe of what we see in our Savior. And Lord Jesus, we see what you did so many years ago, a miraculous work by which you proved to these men who had doubted and who weren't worthy that you are always right, that you know what you're doing, that you are the Lord and so willing to drop all, willing to leave everything they knew to follow you. We pray we would, in the same spirit, we would respond to this text and do the same. That we would see, even in their calling and commission, that the church will go out and be successful. And, And we, by extension, in our office as believers, have a responsibility to do the same. But that as well we would be encouraged and strengthened by the assurance of this great catch of fish. Something that can't be done by human power. Something that shows divine authority. That we would be encouraged to know your word does always prove true. We pray this.